0: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
1: The assembly makes it clear they're looking for a preacher to be a scholar, a worshiper, an orator of some kind, an apologist, a pastor, a servant. Those themes that run through those pages are impactful.
0: Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master, and our guest today is Chancellor's Professor of Historical Theology and Associate Professor of Church History at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., he has done extensive research and writing on the Westminster Confession of Faith, which he has discussed before on this program, but we're going to go into some more detail today on another aspect of the work of the Westminster Assembly. Uh, Chad Van Dixler has just written a book entitled God's Ambassadors, the Westminster Assembly and the Reformation of the English Pulpit, 1643 to 1653, so here to talk about Westminster and preaching is Dr. Chad Van Dixorn. Professor Van Dixorn, thank you for joining us.
1: Jonathan, it's it's a delight to talk to you again.
0: Now, most of our listeners will know something about the Westminster Confession of Faith, or at least will have heard of that, and, and many will be in churches where that's the sort of grounding confessional document. But what else did the Westminster Assembly do besides work on this confessional document?
1: Well, it worked on catechetical documents, it spent a long time working on worship, and really got into the weeds and thinking about what the pastor's life should look like. It cared a great deal about, about preaching and reforming preaching in their own day and setting a pattern for, for those to follow. And of course, the assembly spent a long time thinking about, about church governance. So lots of topics.
0: Now, were all of these men taking part in these discussions, ordained ministers? Did they all preach?
1: Yeah. Everyone there would have been a preacher. Everyone there was an ordained minister, most of them from the Church of England.
0: So they discussed preaching. They were preachers. What did they advise concerning preaching?
1: Well, well, uh, they had a lot to say both about preachers and preaching, you know, preachers, uh, they wanted to see godly and trained and, as you've uh, said, or ordained as well. Someone's appointed for the task that they really didn't think that someone should self-call into ministry. So uh, all those things. And then with, with uh, preaching, Jonathan, they wanted preachers to see that the word of God is the ordinary means of grace they wanted Christ centered sermons. They wanted a reliance on the Holy Spirit. Lots of things. Lots of things.
0: I want to talk about each of those items if we have time, but let's set it against the backdrop of their day. Did this come about because of particular concerns they had? about the general state of preaching in their own day? In other words, is that why they tried to drill down into some of these specifics? Was it because of what they saw and were, and were concerned with?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> uh, there, there's no end of, of problems then as now, both with preachers and with preaching, Jonathan. And what, one of, the, one of the, the sort of tawdry tales of ministerial incompetence was produced by john white a member of parliament who ended up at the westminster assembly he talks about uh, ministers who were accused by parliament of buggery attempted bestiality drunken ministers popishly affected ministers womanizers rapists thieves gamblers sabbath breakers Uh, I, i mean the chronicle of, of woes with respect to ministerial character, you know, accounts of battery and sexual assault and verbal abuse, people, you know, flirting from the pulpit and making business ventures out of burials, begging for money during communion. I mean, the, the list is pretty long and pretty impressive. So they've got a problem with, with, with godliness. And then, and then they've got a problem with preaching too in, in that uh, a lot of people couldn't preach, to be ordained in the Church of England did not give a minister either an obligation or a right to preach. So the Westminster Assembly wanted to change that. They wanted to tether pastoring to preaching.
0: So in order to be uh, ordained, and a- they wanted to, you to also be a preacher. Those things went hand in hand, in other words.
1: For, for the Westminster Assembly, yeah. yeah P- prior yeah, to that yeah. point, you needed to get a, s- a separate license to preach. Which could be given to non-ministers and was not guaranteed at all for ministers. So the Westminster Assembly saw the two, I think because of their you know, obvious commitment to the pastoral epistles and the outworking of that in the church of their day. They're committed to the idea that ministers know how to preach, not just read other people's sermons, um, not just administer the sacraments, as important as the latter is, um, but to be able to construct their own sermons. And press press those home on the consciences and and minds of their hearers.
0: So, what did they want to see in a sermon? You talked about the preacher, and and, yeah. and we, that's obviously a significant part of what they discussed as well. But what about the actual sermon itself? What would they see as being necessary in a godly and biblical sermon?
1: Yeah. So, two main sources of information there. Of course, they're buried within their directory for public worship, which is a kind of like a DIY liturgy for ministers. They've got they have a few paragraphs uh, giving advice for preaching, and or, or or for preachers, sort of specifying what a sermon ought to contain. A sermon needed to contain sort of a a decent introduction. It needed to be compelling. The preacher wasn't to assume that everyone listening was going to be persuaded uh, without solid arguments. Preachers were to kind of anticipate possible objections to the the sermons. They were to show how a passage connected to Jesus Christ, either through a theological theme or through some kind of textual connection or resonance there, uh, maybe a Maybe, uh, you know, paying a t- close attention to the literature and the text of Scripture and seeing how that might be echoed in descriptions of Christ's own work and, and so on. So, exegetically based, interesting, persuasive, and Christ-centered. It, there's different, different ways of preaching Christ, and I talk about those the sort of different ways in which uh, Puritans preach Christ, but, but that was really an important component as well.
0: So they had to be based in an exegesis of the text. They had to sort of press things home in a way that that was interesting, but also they had to be preaching Christ on a on a week by week uh, basis. Yeah. Now, would you draw a straight line between those rules or guidelines and what we ought to see today? In other words, is, is that kind of how you would explain preaching in our own day as well?
1: Yeah, and I, I hope that just doesn't sound too convenient, and that this echoes what I think is still needed. I, I think this is, the Reformers were on to something, the post-Reformation preachers tended to be on to the same thing. In terms of component parts of a successful sermon in the Holy Spirit's hands, yeah, I think that the component parts ought to be the same. The way in which that's done, well, I, I mean, just like Reform preachers today— uh, Puritans and members of the assembly were not all equal, and slavish imitation of Puritan sermons can often be a be a bad thing. I mean, Jeremiah Burroughs had balanced sermons between the law and the gospel, but he could preach for about a year on the law before he had a year on the gospel. I, I think sermons ought to be more self-contained units, preaching Christ every time. There were those who thought that preaching Christology was preaching Christ, you know, talking about Christ's two natures, one one person. I, I think Christ needs to be, Christ and his benefits, Christ and the blessings that come from him need to be preached. And some Puritans got that, others didn't. Puritan preachers complained about other Puritan preachers. You know, Thomas Goodwin says that people could add a little bit more uh, beauty to their feet, echoing Romans 10, if they preached more the gospel, less truths or issues of the moment, and so on. So, but the basic idea of preaching the text, preaching Christ, making it persuasive, applying it to the heart, that, that's good. Um, now,
0: at the risk of a slavish imitation, which, which, as you say, we ought to avoid, if one of our listeners wanted to sample exemplary preaching from this time, yeah, um, yeah. who would you point them to? Do, do you have a favorite English Puritan preacher from this era?
1: <laughs> I do have. I have a bunch of favorites.
0: I think for
1: a more learned audience, Edward Reynolds and Daniel Featley both offer a kind of flavor of thoughtful sermon. The, the language that they, that they deploy in their sermons, the metaphors, just really, really quite good. I also appreciate William Bridge. I think he's one of the most colorful preachers at the assembly or so maybe the, the Thomas Watson of his day. So I, I find his sermons very edifying. I tend to avoid the preachers who will kind of do a dozen or 20 sermons on a third of a verse. And there's some of those at the Westminster Assembly also. But there, there's just a, a, a couple a couple examples. I find uh, Anthony Burgess pretty straightforward and helpful. You know, a good, solid preacher. So just to name a few.
0: No, those are those are helpful names. So if someone wants to dip their toe in the water so to speak of this, those are the names that you would recommend to them. You often have opportunities to preach. And what have you learned as a preacher yeah, from a from studying the preaching and the advice to preachers that that was given during that time?
1: Yeah. So so thank you. In terms of the personal impact that uh, this study has had on me and, and reading a Puritans had on me, there's, just, I guess, two main buckets. The first bucket is is what the Westminster Assembly is looking for in a preacher. When you read the directory for preaching in the section on, entitled uh, Of the Preaching of the Word, the Assembly makes it clear that they're, they're looking for a preacher to be a scholar, a worshiper, an orator of some kind, an apologist, pastor, a servant, those themes that run through those pages are impactful. That's that's sort of a rubric through which I, I think about myself as a preacher. You know, if any one of those parts, scholar, worshiper, orator, apologist, pastors, or just a servant of Christ and his people, if any one of those parts is missing, then there's something missing in me as a preacher. And then in terms of preaching, I think in part it's through this study of Puritan preachers that I've I've realized that that there's a big difference. Well, well, there's there's more than one type of preaching Christ. There's, There's the preachers who make theological connections to Christ, but are not often sensitive to the shape or the, the flavor or the texture of a particular passage. They're not necessarily sensitive to the, to the words and the, the phrasing of scripture, but, but more to the theological ideas deduced from a passage. That's one kind of preaching. And then there's this other kind of preaching that really kind of meditates on the text. And so some Puritan preachers, you know, let's say they're preaching Matthew chapter one, uh, by the time they're done, you understand the incarnation better. And uh, praise God for that. They preach the gospel, do a good job. Others will, by by the time you've done the sermon, they'll leave you with an appreciation of Matthew chapter one, as well as the incarnation. There's some Puritan preachers who, who leave you appreciating the scriptures more and not just the doctrines the scriptures teach and who persuade you of the gospel In a way that's uniquely shaped by that passage. Uh, The preacher who does this on steroids, I think, is Charles Hurl. And, uh, you know, I can't commend everything that he does. But he really drills down and his sermons or his expositions. His meditations are shaped by the passage he's preaching in a a fascinating way. So I found that instructive for myself.
0: Chad, I'm eager to talk with you more, and we'll have time to talk more about their advice and instructions for pastors. But thank you for your time talking about the Westminster Assembly and preaching today.
1: A pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. Our guest today has recently written a book called God's Ambassadors The Westminster Assembly and the Reformation of the English Pulpit, 1643 to 1653. Just for listening, we'd like to give you the opportunity to win this book, so go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there will be a link there for you to enter and win. Thanks also for continuing to support the work of Theology on the Go and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. If you're able to make a donation, you can do that at alliancenet.org or at placefortruth.org. And thanks for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.